Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this wonderful day. I thank you for allowing us the chance and freedom to worship you. Jesus, this morning I ask that you touch every single one of these people. God, I ask that you teach us this morning. God, I pray that you speak your words through me and your message, that it may be for your glory alone. And I thank you for this opportunity and how you've chosen to use me, Father. I thank you for these people who I get to call my family. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church family. It's good to see some familiar faces here this morning. Um, if you haven't been here before, welcome to TAF. Um, I am so grateful that you are here visiting or uh, returning this morning. So thank you. Thank you, Autumn. I appreciate that. Um, if you do not know me, my name is Madison Argetta. A um, little bit about myself. I was born and raised in Washington State, whole other side of the world, right? Um, and moved here to North Carolina with my family when I was 11 years old. Now, my first time to TAF, to this wonderful church, um, was back in 2016. And I remember my family and us, we started to serve in the youth department, um, which as a youth, I think I was 13, maybe 14 years old. So I felt most comfortable there. And um, it was right over in this room, the youth department, where I, um, I found my love for music and my love for worshiping the Lord through music ministry specifically. Um, it was such a blessing when Riza decided and asked me to, um, me to play this piano on this stage for the first time. I was 15 years old, and I remember getting so nervous. Yeah, right, on this stage? No, 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 I'm not gonna be doing that. You can ask me in three years. When I'm older, I'm not gonna be even looking at this stage. I, I was used to playing piano with the youth and for the youth portion of the service, but I was not gonna, not gonna be doing it for the grown-ups. Thank you very much. <laughs> but, um, but Riza was persistent, and, um, and she, she told me that she would really enjoy having me serving with her on the youth team, and that meant a lot to me. That meant something to me. So against my fear, I said yes, and um, little did I know that that yes would lead into the next three years of my life, um, serving, worshiping, leading, growing, being challenged in a way I never had before, and it was a blessing um, to lead this church in that way. Um, it was, it was definitely one of the most growing years of my life. And I'm so grateful. So thank you, Riza, for trusting in me and allowing God to use me in that way. Um, he's put me here this morning to share my testimony with many of you. And, and um, I'm excited to, to see how he's going to use this this morning. I... Um, I've been blessed to live on this earth for 20 years, <laughs> and many of you may be wondering, well, what does she have to share with us? She's only 20 years old, right? Which, that's valid. If, that, if, that, if that's you thinking that, that is completely valid, and, 
and fair, but um, there are two things I believe are true. The word of God and my testimony of childlike faith. Now God has given me God has given me some experiences that have shaped my life and I believe that he's used me in many different ways and this is just a little bit different this morning but um but I'm excited to share with you some of the things that I've been learning as a child of God and as a child with grown grown in a strong household of faith what is it what does it look like to shape your own faith as a child so um this morning I'd like to uh I'd like to answer a couple of questions, a couple of points that I'd like to go through. Three points. One, what is childlike faith? Two, why do we need childlike faith? And three, how do we turn and become like children? My message title today is Childlike Faith. I want to reshape, um, reshape the idea of maybe what we've grown to believe childlike faith looks like. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see, I'm excited to share with you what God has shown me through that. And um, I hope you guys are blessed by this testimony. So if you brought out your Bibles with you this morning, or if you can turn on your Bibles, that would be wonderful. If not, no worries. We have the words here, the verses to follow along with. So you can um, follow along with me there. But we're going to turn to Mark chapter 9 this morning. We're going to be reading mainly from Mark and Matthew today. And I, um, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. So you can go ahead and turn to Mark 9.33. And we're going to read the first couple of verses um, and see what Jesus is teaching here. So starting at verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he being Jesus, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, this is a pretty packed section. This is a pretty packed chapter, what we're reading, really, but especially what we're focusing on today, it has multiple different things that it's teaching us. And I want to look into each of these verses a bit deeper this morning and really understand the context of what we're reading. So it's, it, we're kind of going to go through each of these lines um, and, and really diving into what are we reading? What is the context of what we're reading? What are we learning, most importantly? So we're going to start um, back here at the top, back at 33. And they came to Capernaum. Okay, let's stop there. Let's, let's find out where were they coming from? What, what are we reading? What is behind what we're reading here? So if we look back 
into the beginning of Mark, it starts with the transfiguration of Christ, which was when Jesus and a couple of his disciples went up to a high mountain, and Jesus had a physical transformation, as in his body and his clothes literally became as white as the sun. That's how Matthew says it. And Mark says, intensely white, as a revelation of his glory and his perfection. And shortly after that, Jesus healed a boy who was demon-possessed and used it as an example of faith to the disciples. After that miracle, Jesus foretold the death and resurrection of the Son of Man for the second time. Now, the reason I want to look at the context and what's happening before what we're really focusing on today is because context gives us a clearer meaning of what the author is intending to convey to us. And without that, we might get misconstrued ideas of, of what Jesus is really trying to teach us here. So the events that happened prior to this specific who is the greatest passage were the transfiguration, Jesus healing and performing a miracle, and Jesus, again, foretelling his resurrection, meaning Jesus is showing his perfect power strong faith and true humility. That's what I that's what I took from this from this from this passage. Let's go back to the top. And he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, "What were you discussing on the way?" Notice two things. One, it says when he was in the house, meaning Jesus chose to instruct and teach his disciples in the privacy of a home. And two, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now we all know, Jesus knows all things. You don't have to, you don't have to ask him as though he does not know, but he's asking the disciples a question for their sake. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. The disciples were arguing about who was the best, who would reign highest in the kingdom of God uh, under Christ, of course. They're looking at greatness from an outlook of status and power. But let's think about this. If the disciples are arguing among themselves about who is the greatest, does that not reveal human pride? Is that not already telling us that they've shifted their focus from Christ to themselves? So when I first read this, I'm going to be honest with you guys. When I first read this, um, I kind of imagined myself in an observation standpoint. I was walking with the disciples. I was talking with them, which talking quickly turned into arguing, right? Um... But I was, I was more so listening. I felt like I would be listening. You know, if I was there in person, I'd be listening to them fighting and arguing about who was the greatest person because, come on, let's be honest. We all know who's the greatest. It's Jesus. So why are we even opening our mouths? But when I really actually close my eyes and try to put myself in that situation, I realize I don't think I would be able to be silent. I genuinely don't think I would be able to keep my mouth shut. I mean, Peter is yelling, you didn't preach last week, I did. And Matthew's saying, 
you didn't heal this many people. I healed three blind men in the past month. Can we be honest and say that we probably wouldn't be able to hold it in? I mean, I know that I would probably be yelling as loud as them just trying to make it to the top of the good list. Yes, it's for Jesus, but we're still shifting our focus back to ourselves and our works, which is not what the true gospel is about. Let's illustrate this in a different way this morning. Have you ever seen one of your family members or your friends struggle through a financial situation or relationship problems or just, just life? in general, in the general aspect of trials and struggles. And in that moment, you, you watching them, did you pity them? Did you say to yourself in your mind, man, if they would just, oh, if they would just turn to God, if they, if they would just allow God into this circumstance, or if they would just shift their minds, or if they would just humble themselves, life would be so much better. Can we be real? Our pride may be subconscious, but we do this very often. Without even realizing it, we tend to look at others and mentally make a checklist of comparison of how much better we may be than other people. I know that I do, and I, I'm coming here, I'm standing right here, I'm not gonna lie to you guys, I've been pretty nervous the past week. <laughs> the thought of preparing this message and, and really my testimony of, of faith and what I've learned in the short years that I've been here has been nothing but nerve-wracking. I mean, I, I never thought I would be standing here during this part. <laughs> and if you asked me a year ago to speak, it, it never would have been, it never would have been a yes. But thanks be to Matt for inviting me here. <laughs> Um, but back to the text, I, I've seen that we really might honestly want our fellow Christians and our fellow family members and our fellow friends to be better people, right? We, we genuinely want them to be healthier and be happier, but this, at the same time, we're comparing our circumstances to theirs. It's funny how when we try to be selfless, we end up being selfish. Unintentionally, but it happens. I've really been thinking about that. I think God has been revealing to me a, a different side of what I thought that might look like. And he's revealed to me that anytime we're trying to be selfless or humble or, or righteous in the holiest way of it, we end up chasing the image of humility itself. But when we shift that and begin to chase the image of Christ is when we truly become humble. So let's come back to the text. We're going to go back to verse 2. So when Jesus is asking the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent because they had known they were arguing about who was the greatest, right? And he sat down. Okay, he's getting serious. This is a serious thing. He realizes this is a problem, so we need to talk about this. 
he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone, okay, hold on. If any of you think that you can be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child, imagine this child, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So he's saying that if anyone is to be first, he must be last and servant of anyone, not just the people you choose, but of anyone, your coworker, the mean guy that cut, cut in front of you on the road on the way here. You must be servant of all. You must humble yourselves and allow God to use you in that way. It's not about your status. It's not about the influence you have over other people. It's not about the incredible things and the incredible gifts God has given us. He's saying, no, 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 you guys need to lower yourselves. You need to reevaluate where your ego is. And it's about recognizing the servanthood of Christ and reflecting that as a lifestyle. Not going to lie, that, that seems really hard to do some days. Some day, do you ever just wake up and be like, today is not my day? It just did not start out. Maybe I slept weird. Maybe my neck was off. I mean, I've done that a couple days. <laughs> and, and then as you go on through your day, you're just realizing the day is getting worse and worse. This does not make sense. And through that, we unintentionally elevate our ego and our pride. Although we don't understand what's going on, we haven't given it back to God. And I struggle with that too. But let's ask question one. What is childlike faith? Let's identify that. What does that mean? So let's, let's look at this child, right, that Jesus is using in the illustration. He took this child. I would assume this child is maybe, I don't know, four, five, six years old, somewhere around there. He's taking this child who has no status, little to no experience in life, no major control or authority or power over his life, right? No great financial stability or incredible wisdom to share. He's probably the weakest person in the room, physically speaking. Not probably, he is the weakest person in the room. But one thing that matters is that he trusts in the one person who can make up for everything he is lacking, his father. So this is a picture of my family. If you guys don't know us very well, um, this is the latest picture of my brother's graduation. Great job, Brennan, by the way, okay. <laughs> um, on the left, my father, Edwin, on the right, my mom, Janelle, Brandon, the graduate, and um, me on top. Um, now, as I had said a little bit earlier, I was born and raised in Washington State, 
and just before we really get into it, all of the stereotypes you think, okay, Washington, rainy, cold, doesn't sound like someplace I want to be, that's probably correct. That's really how it is. Um, <laughs> uh, when I was about five years old, we moved to a suburb in Washington called Mill Creek, which is about 45 minutes um, north of Seattle. And uh, we lived there for a couple years. It was a pretty nice neighborhood. I believed it was, a, it was the best neighborhood probably in the whole world. Um, all of my friends could tell me that their house and their neighborhood was nicer, but I, I would not believe you. My house was the best. And the reason was that we had two playgrounds and a whole entire soccer field. Now for a five-year-old, this is a pretty big deal because we have a lot of places to go play. I mean, the house is cool and everything, but getting outside was really my favorite thing to do. <laughs> um, so one of our traditions um, was to go outside as soon as dad came home and be ready to go play soccer. And um, and my dad would pull some pretty long work hours. Now, if any of you know my father, he is one of the hardest working people and go, 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 no stopping. <laughs> um, if you've ever met him, you know that without even having to say anything. But um, he, uh, he would pull some long hours working as a mortgage broker at the time. Um, but anyways, when he would come home, Brandon and I would get so excited because dad was finally home and we can go play soccer with who I thought was a professional soccer player. I mean, dad can run as fast or, come on, let's be real, faster than anybody. And I believed that. <laughs> um, so Brandon would have been three, I think, and I would have been five or six, something like that. And um, as soon as dad came home, we were ready, ready to go. Tennis shoes on, let's go. I have the ball, do not worry about it, let's go. It's a half a mile away. We need to start walking now before the sun goes down. So probably 30 minutes every time into our games, and I'm not lying, every single time, Brandon, my brother, this one, the little one, uh, would throw himself on the ground the second I got two feet in front of him with the ball. And he would just start crying and crying, no fair, no fair, sister. That's all he could say, right? His only three words. But, <laughs> but he would be crying and just, he lost it. He lost it. And I, you know, in my prideful mindset, right, kept running. I was like, Goodbye, so sorry for you, but this is a game for the professionals. Now dad is here, I do not need you anymore. So I would keep running, uh, but my father, God bless my father, would pick up Brennan and keep running with me. I could never get over the fact that my dad could still beat me with Brandon in his arms. You know, mentally, you know, if you carry on more weight, he's less likely to beat you. And I mean, many of you probably have seen a five-year-old run. They run fairly fast. They're not the, <laughs> the fastest, but I mean, I just ran with a five-year-old and it was, uh, it was a little hard for me to keep up. I have a lot of cousins and um, I can't run next to any of them anymore because I don't know, maybe I'm just not athletic like I used to be. But um, <laughs> uh, anyways, I was absolutely in awe of the fact that Brandon, I mean, that my dad could pick up Brandon 
and run and continue to run that fast. I never got frustrated with it, but I was just shocked. I was like, wow, okay, dad really is a professional soccer player. He really is the strongest person I've ever known. I really do continue to see my dad as the strongest, fastest, smartest person. But do you ever think about the fact that when we're children, when we're kids, we look at our parents, or maybe an older role model, as superheroes? Mom, dad, they can do anything. They can beat up anybody. They have all of the strength in the world, no doubt. I believe it. You could bring your little friends over, but my dad, oh, he'll protect me. Don't worry about it, right? Imagine if we had faith, childlike faith, in God the same way we did as young children in our parents. Imagine if we had that un undeniable faith that no matter what you will bring me, oh, he can beat you up. <laughs> He's not playing. <laughs> if you're hungry, who do you go to? If you have a question, who do you ask? If you're tired, if you're worried, if you're happy, who do you go to tell? To have childlike faith means to take everything, absolutely everything you have to your father. You don't think twice if he can handle it or not. You believe that he is faithful, he is kind, and he is loving enough to hold on to you and hold on to your problems at the same time. That is childlike faith. Now I want to turn back into um, Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, to kind of get another perspective on this event. Now, as many of you guys know, um, the four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so a lot of them have similar accounts of uh, Jesus' life and the ministry he served while he was living on this earth. So we're going to turn to Matthew 18, which is going to be a different version of what we've already read. So starting at the beginning of this chapter, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So question two, why do we need childlike faith? Why is this important? He says it right here, for salvation. Jesus is saying, guys, it's not as complicated as you think it is. It's, this is important. He's making this important. This is straightforward. He says, unless you turn and become like children, unless you take hold of childlike faith, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't be with me forever. There's a Greek word. Oh, it's right here. This Greek word. Raise your hand if you can say it. You can. Say it. 
he's correct. <laughs> I learned it five times just to just to make sure <laughs> that's correct. It's strefo, and uh, this is the word that we have uh, translated as turn. And in this this um, specific this specific word, literally takes it as the physical the physical aspect and the physical motion of turning. And I think this is important uh, because, because it, it's taking a physical motion and translating it into something metaphorical. And I think that's why it's so important here. The King James Version uses the term converted. NIV uses change. Um, but most biblical, most biblical uh, versions now use turn because I think there's something so important about what this is teaching us. He's saying, Jesus is saying, honestly, if you don't change, if you do not convert, if you do not shift your mind, if you don't turn from your sin and humble yourselves, you won't even enter my kingdom. So last question, how do we do this? How do we turn and become like children as the Bible is instructing us to do? That doesn't seem easy. Okay, children, little, small, not knowing a whole entire lot. They have a lot of energy. So what does it mean? What does that look like for us to become like children? Any of you remember Pathfinders? Yeah? Okay, so if you don't know, Pathfinders is the worldwide Adventist kind of youth club where we learned many, I mean countless, skills. We could earn lots of honors, which are kind of like badges, and and we just made friends. I mean, I loved Pathfinders. We were there. It felt like we were at the church every day, but, um, but it was so much fun, and I'm so glad that my mother signed me up for it. Um, well, one of the sub-clubs, I guess you could call it, um, that I was a part of at, at the local church back when I was, I think, 15, maybe, was drill team. Now, uh, we were taught many, many drills and different commands, and uh, it was no joke. Some days, I mean, most days, it was real, and I did not know that this is how it was going to go down, and I, I probably said to my mother, why in the world would you sign me up for this? I, I mean, most of you know me. I don't, don't do that. I don't really understand how to, you know, stand there like that and be yelled at. <laughs> um, but uh, there was one command that they would yell. There was one command that you had to be ready for. And so when they said, about face, you put your right foot right directly behind your left and made a complete 180 turn. Now, I would love to uh, demonstrate um, the beautiful skills that I learned back when I was a Pathfinder, but I did decide to wear heels this morning, so I won't be doing that for you because I most definitely will be falling on my face. So, um, but you get the idea. About face was a complete 180 turn. No questions asked. You're ready for the next one. I kind of like to relate this to the illustration of what Jesus is saying. He is kind of yelling about face. The gospel is about face. Turn from your sin as quickly as possible. Before you even see it, turn away. 
turn completely around and come back to me. Now, to turn from your sin, to turn from distraction, to turn from temptation and become like children again, that's really what the point of what he's saying is. He's not saying become immature. No, he's saying become pure. He's not telling you to forget how to speak. He's not telling you to forget your words. He's telling you to remember who's in control. We need to refocus our priorities. Because I hate to break it to you, but we are not in this world for ourselves. We're not here to please ourselves. We're not here to glorify ourselves. We were created. We were created by God to serve him, to live for him. If he sent his only son, his perfect and holy son down to this earth, who humbled himself, brought down his pride, he glorified himself through sacrificing his life for us, which as a young child, that doesn't make sense. Somebody died so that I could live? That's, that's harsh. That's real. But that's the gospel. Jesus came down. He humbled himself and died for us, for our sins, for our transgressions. He carried our name to that cross. And he said, this is for you. Praise Jesus because he did that for us. Praise Jesus. And I think, honestly, that's where our worship comes from. That's where our trust comes from. That's where our faith comes from. As soon as we grasp what was done, we can identify what we need to do. Matthew 5, 5 said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When I was seven years old, I had my first opportunity to, uh, to sing special music. And, um, and it, it, was, it was a big deal. Music was a huge deal in my family growing up. Uh, my mom's side of the family was incredibly, is incredibly gifted by the Lord with uh, music talents and worship. And um, most of her family and, and most of us now can play something, play an instrument. And I remember, um, I mean, as long as I can remember, a, a very young child sitting in the middle of this, what we created as a circle, a music circle. And there would be singing and laughing. I mean, it lasted for hours. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a joke. Music was the one thing that brought our family back together. A bunch of things could be happening through life, but the second that we got back into our little circle and gathered into somebody's home and started singing, everything was right back where we had left it. So, um, so my mom helped me choose what song I was going to sing, and uh, my grandpa was going to play a guitar for me, acoustic guitar. And uh, I honestly don't remember a lot of the events that happened prior. I don't, I don't remember practicing the song. I don't remember um, even standing up there and singing. But I do remember one thing very vividly. 
I wasn't afraid. I truly, genuinely believed the words that I was singing. I had no doubt in my mind that there was a father in heaven, different from my dad here, who loved me, watched me, and protected me. He was with me, and I could feel him. You couldn't convince me otherwise. I could feel Jesus. I knew he was with me. Now, as a child, to have that kind of a faith, I think is rare. But that's what makes it different because you notice that it's challenging to believe in something that maybe other people don't. Thank God for my family who was strong in the Lord and raised me up in the right way. I'm so grateful for the family I was born into. But it wasn't easy being a Christian. It's never promised to be easy believing in the Lord, right? You face trials. You face things unimaginable. And for each person, it's different. But to be able to maintain that faith, that is your testimony. To hold on to the promises of God, that is your testimony. To trust him when it's not easy, when everyone's yelling at you, saying, what are you doing? It's not easy to trust God, but that is your testimony. The song I sang that day was called Faith. As a child, it was called Faith. And the chorus said, Faith to see beyond what I can see. Faith to know that you will do wonderful things. I will trust you, Lord. I'll al always believe. As I hold on to my faith, you are holding on to me. I believed those words, and I do believe those words. So if it's okay with you guys, I'd love to sing that this morning for you.